Welcome to Faith and Freedom Fighters. I'm Robert Muse, co-founder and senior counsel of the American Freedom Law Center. And as usual, I'm joined by my fellow freedom fighter, co-founder and senior counsel, David Urashami. It's good to be back with you again. Our last podcast was on September 10th, 2021. It's, uh, it's been too long, uh, but we've had a, a crazy busy month. And um, I hope to review some of that uh, with all of you uh, today because there's some important cases that you need to be aware of. Um, aware of. And you know, as we've mentioned many times on these podcasts, we're not professional podcasters. We are professional defenders of freedom in our courts. We're litigators. And that uh, we do that first and foremost. So our litigation schedule will uh, trump our podcast schedule every time. Um, so we, uh, sorry for missing these last several weeks, but uh, it was uh, because we were gainfully employed, otherwise defending freedoms uh, in, the, in the courts. So I just want to, uh, I want to run just to a quick summary of, of the things that we've done um, over, this, uh, over this past month, um, just briefly. And, and, uh, but let me, before I do that, I just want to you know, welcome my, uh, my colleague onto the, onto the podcast. And uh, as I'm going through this litany of things we did in September, um, feel free to uh, chime in. David, welcome. Thank you, Robert. I, you know, I really enjoy this hour that we get to spend. Oftentimes we have offline conversation, but it's in between things, right? So this is an hour where we really are dedicated to thinking and talking um, to our audience and to ourselves about important issues. Um, I will add that part of the reason also that we are offline is, of course, the fall season for the Jewish High Holy Days comes up. And I was always in between something and you had a busy litigation schedule during that time period. So that uh, combined to uh, uh, provide the uh, hiatus from these podcasts. But I'm glad to be back on. Very good. So uh, let me just run through it. So on September 2nd, we had a, uh, we had a victory in the U.S. Court of Appeals uh, for the Eighth Circuit. Um, this federal appellate court struck down a Bloomington, Minnesota ordinance that forbade photographing children in city parks ruling that the ordinance was a violation of the First Amendment. We had multiple media organizations filing amicus briefs um, on behalf of our, our client, Sally Ness, and for good reason. I mean, this was a content-based restriction. And quite frankly, the, the city of Bloomington uh, passed this ordinance specifically to try to shut down our client who was uh, filming and, uh, and keeping track and, and making public all these uh, zoning violations and, and other violations committed by this local mosque and its associated school. And, uh, and she, would, she brought the complaints to the, uh, to the city, the city ignored them. Um, and so she posted them up on Facebook and she created a blog post for it. And uh, you know, the city threatened her with this uh, state harassment statute. And then they passed this ordinance to prohibit filming of, uh, of children in a public park because the park that this, that this uh, mosque was using was a public park that was um, essentially given to them by the, uh, by the city of Bloomington. So anyways, a, a, a very important uh, First Amendment uh, victory in Minnesota. And when you think about it, of all places, Minnesota, right, where they were uh, filming, you know, with the uh, George Floyd um, death and all that. I mean, that was all exposed through private citizens using, using uh, smartphones to videotape. And here you have that very same, you know, the city of Bloomington, um, you know, trying to stop uh, the videotaping and filming of, of our client. But they did not succeed. Um, and also this month, we filed our motion for attorney's fees in the appellate court, and we'll be filing a motion for attorney's fees in the district court um, soon. So these are, these are important cases in many ways. On, uh, on September 9th, 
Uh, I was up in Grand Rapids. Can Michigan. I pause you there, Rob? Yes, just, go ahead, David. Just yeah. two words. One is um, this case um, demonstrates again the Musian axiom, the Robert Muse axiom that we hold our nose in the district court uh, until we get into the appellate courts. Now, sometimes, in fact, oftentimes the appellate courts aren't much better, but that's an important consideration because oftentimes um, we lose at the district court level because you get a single judge who's on the district court, federal district court, and who just gets it wrong and gets it wrong almost purposefully, right? They, they have a conclusion in mind and they look for facts to meet the conclusion and ignore all the other facts. And that was the case here. Also, the other element to this, and even though um, the appeal win was on the city ordinance, um, Keith Ellison had weighed in, right? I mean, there's, yeah. and he's a bad actor. Yeah, the city, well, the, the, uh, they threatened a prosecutor with the state harassment statute. And we challenged that statute uh, facially and as applied because it was plainly unconstitutional. And Ellison was defending it up and down all the way through the courts uh, until it came time for the, you know, for the appeal. What did the state legislature do? They ran back and they, and they amended it <laughs> because they knew it was unconstitutional. And they amended it certainly in a way that would not uh, prohibit our client from doing what uh, she was doing because obviously that would be unconstitutional because her filming is fully protected by the First Amendment. So that's one of those cases. This is one of those cases too where, um, you know, sometimes punching them in the nose uh, gets the result that you want, even though, you know, they, they take measures to avoid a, a court decision on the state statute, but they couldn't avoid it on the, uh, on the local statute. And to David's point, you know, we, and I, I do, I tell my clients all the time, you sometimes you have to hold your nose in the district court and let's get up to the appellate court. And if the appellate court, I'd rather have a decision from the appellate court because right? the appellate court is where the case law is made. And whereas a decision in the district court is binding on that district, a, uh, a decision from, from a U.S. Court of Appeals uh, is binding on that circuit, which covers many states. Like, for example, the Sixth Circuit doesn't cover just Michigan. It covers Ohio, Tennessee, Kentucky. So you have a bigger impact uh, when you win on appeal. And, on appeal. and the, the majority of our, of our cases, the big wins in particular, are all at the appellate level, which is, uh, which is quite good. In fact, so and, let me, I, I, go ahead. Yeah. So let me, this is an important case, and it was important for those reasons. So for example, Rob and I are authors of a book that was published by the Center for Security Policy called Lawfare. Um, and I forgot the title, the whole name of the title, but it was about lawfare. And it was about lawfare being used by our side because lawfare was invented, the use of the law in the courts to obtain policy changes um, in your in your area of concern and it was used by the leftists and the progressives literally time immemorial from the early parts of the 20th century the aclu used it very effectively the environmental groups have used it well starting with the whole um post 9-11 era rob and i have begun to use it and um, model our attack using those methods but of course doing it for the public good not for the destruction of the public and here you see, we win a case on appeal in terms of the city ordinance, but Rob in his litigation was able to force the state to change the law. And if you read the appellate decision, it says, well, these claims are moved because the, uh, you know, the legislature changed the, uh, the statute. 
And so that might look as a partial failure. But in fact, that was the biggest part of the win, because the biggest threat is not from this one little city you know, ordinance. It's from the state harassment statute. And the result of our litigation forced the state to legislatively make the change. So it appears like a court loss, but in fact, it was a huge win. The other aspect of this is it made Keith Ellison eat his own words. I mean, the fact that they had to go back and change it. Keith Ellison, the attorney general of Michigan, formerly a congressman, a black- of Minnesota, of Minnesota. From Minnesota, rather, right, I'm sorry. A black convert to Islam, a um, supporter and uh, someone who's praised Louis Farrakhan, a vicious Jew hater and uh, a black racist, um, and who has supported and spoken on behalf of the Council on American Islamic Relations, a Muslim Brotherhood um, uh, organization seeking the destruction of Western civilization. So this is not a good guy. And um, th this piece of litigation that Rob really carried forward demonstrates how effective AFLC can be in our arena. Very good. So next, uh, as I mentioned, uh, on September 9th, we, uh, I was up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, selecting a jury for a jury trial of four Red Rose rescuers who are pro-lifers who go on to a abortion center property to hand out Red Roses to convince um, moms to, uh, you know, to, to don't, uh, you know, go forward with this, uh, with the abortion, right? Abortion's a, a violent act that results in the death of an innocent life, and it causes irreparable harm to the mothers. So they went there with the roses and, uh, and they were arrested, cited for, um, <clears throat> for trespassing to, on the property. And we had the jury trial the next week on Friday, the uh, September 17th. And during that trial, two uh, city police officers testified, the abortion center manager testified and three of the pro-lifers testified. And uh, at the close of the evidence and the close of arguments, we had a jury return a unanimous verdict of not guilty for all four of the rescuers. And, uh, you know, these, these, uh, these victories are, aren't easy to come by because they, um, it's really, in many ways, it's an act of civil disobedience, right? This is their, their Rosa Parks moment. You know, Rosa Parks was violating the law when she refused to give up her, her seat on the bus. You know, many of these uh, civil rights activists who refused to, you know, leave the lunch counters or whatever, you know, take whatever action that was contrary to the Jim Crow laws, um, they were engaging in acts of, uh, of civil disobedience. But it might be civil disobedience, but it's obedience to God and his law, right? It's, it's an, un, as Thomas Aquinas, you know, famously said, any law that is contrary to God's law is no law at all. It's, it's violence. And that's what abortion is. Abortion is violence. So I was able to convince this uh, jury through the, uh, the evidence presented that uh, these four Red Rose rescues were not guilty. And that's what they returned as a verdict. So that was a, uh, that was a, that was a good, uh, a, a good win. Um, so let, me, let me chime in yep. again here, Rob. One second, slow down. Yeah, I want, I, want, I want the audience to really understand what's taking place in these cases other than the description um, that you're providing. And that is, uh, by the way, while I was enjoying my Jewish high holidays, Rob was busy working because most of these, in fact, all of these September cases, um, he was hammering away. And I mean, hammering away day and night. So uh, hats off yarmulkes off the whole bit. <laughs> but here again, you see something unique about our organization, the American Freedom Law Center. Because of Robert's background as a Marine judge advocate in handling criminal cases, 
and indeed even outside of that capacity in his um, pro bono nonprofit capacity before starting AFLC, he was involved in court martials of our some of our soldiers in Iraq that were court martialed for simply engaging in um, good Marines. Soldiering. I got to correct you. You don't Marines. call a Marine a soldier. You call a Marine a Marine. Army uh, culpa, mea culpa. <laughs> That's a terrible, terrible mistake. Yeah, you should know. You you've taught, been working with you me taught, long taught, Yeah, you taught me that long yeah. ago, and I I shouldn't have made that same mistake. So, um, the fact that Rob has that ability to go into a criminal court and um, understand what's important, what's not, and how to litigate in a criminal environment allows the American Freedom Law Center unique to many public interest law firms who only engage in civil work to step in and represent our pro-life clients in criminal cases such as this. The other aspect to this um, case that's extremely unique is that Rob was able to convince the jury based upon just literally superb lawyering because when he talked about on the basis of the testimony the prosecutor in putting forth its case and with the police testimony simply didn't match the facts to the law specifically. And it's only the, the, the cream of the crop lawyers who know how to take that mistake and carefully measure cross-examination and your own witnesses and the timing so you don't tip your hand to the other side they get done with their case and rest. You're able to put on a careful case because again, you don't want to open the door to allow them to come back and fix it and then hammer home during closing argument. So again, um, you, when you understand what's taking place and the nuances in the courtroom, you understand the quality of the legal work being applied here. So again, applause to you, Rob. Oh, thank you. Let me uh, let me move on to the case that's uh, kept me. Rob doesn't like me to compliment him no. privately or in public, so I'm going to yeah. continue doing it. <laughs> well, it was a uh, it was a good victory. Praise God that these uh, pro lifers didn't have to uh, withstand another another guilty plea and and sentencing and all that. This next case, this thing, and quite frankly, it's one of the most uh, egregious violations of religious liberty and freedom and uh, that I've, I've probably witnessed in, in all the 20 plus years that I've been doing this kind of litigation. We represent this group, Catholic Healthcare International. Um, they, they acquired 40 acres of property in Genoa Township in Michigan, not about 20 minutes away from where I am right now, um, from the Diocese of Lansing. Um, they are an organization of lay faithful. They, um, they, their patron saint is St. Padre Pio. Um, they want to provide care for brain injured, for, for people who need, you know, who, who need assistance. Um, but one of their, their principal uh, projects was to create this prayer campus on this 40 acre property in Genoa Township. Um, and on this property, they uh, put up stations of the cross, 14 stations of the cross, uh, which is a um, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a basically a way you, it's at each of the station is a, is a, is a, an image of a, of a critical aspect of uh, Christ's passion. And, um, and you, there are certain prayers you say at each of these stations and these stations were, you know, maybe six feet tall or so. 
Um, in fact, one of the, we had evidence that, you know, each of these stations was actually smaller than birdhouses that they allowed to be put up on poles in the, uh, you know, in the township. They had a, a small altar, smaller than a, your standard picnic table. And they had this image of Our Lady of Grace, a six by six foot image on this uh, stone wall that was built temporarily. It's about, uh, it was all together, it was about 10 feet wide and about 12 feet, um, 12 feet high. And they wanted to build a small chapel, a 95 seat chapel and have just 39 parking spaces. We're talking 40 acres. We only were gonna build on five of the 40 acres in this, rural, in this rural neighborhood. Right up the road, about three miles away is a city park on 38 acres, much smaller. Has full athletic fields, swing sets, a you know, mist zone. A, a, it has walking trails. It has a warming pavilion, restrooms and 200 parking spaces. Well, we, they filed for a, uh, a special application for land use last year to build this property, and it was denied. And we sued the township under the, uh, under the Constitution, but under a federal statute called the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, or RILUPA. And it requires the government to have a compelling reason that's narrowly tailored for denying the land use. It's basically implying strict scrutiny to land use decisions that impose, uh, that, uh, that burden uh, religious exercise. So we filed that lawsuit um, back in October of, of 2020 when they first put up, they didn't build a chapel, they just put up these temporary displays of the cross, the altar, and, uh, and even the, the image of Our Lady of Grace. And they told them, well, you got to take them down and their violation of our sign ordinance. And, and you have to go through this zoning process that at the time would have cost them about $20,000 to put this thing up. So they contacted me and we sent them a letter basically saying, no, I mean, this is an unconstitutional Number one, the, the sign ordinance is unconstitutional on its face, but even this, the enforcement of this against these temporary displays, again, not the chapel or anything, these are just religious displays on 40-acre private property, is unconstitutional. Didn't hear a word from them. We submitted the application. Um, it was denied. And then on May 7th of this year, they sent another demand letter telling them to remove these temporary symbols from the property. Um, and they gave them till June 4th to, uh, to remove them. So we filed our federal civil rights lawsuit on June 2nd. Uh, didn't hear, you know, we, we've been going through litigation on that. They filed a motion to dismiss. We, we responded. We got an argument that coming up in November. Well, there was going to, the Catholic Healthcare International was going to have an event of about 150 people on their property on September 23rd, which is St. Padre Pio's feast day. And bear in mind, in this township, they have an assembly ordinance. You can have assembly up to 1,000 people before you have to get a permit. There's, there's all sorts of events that are held on the private residences just next door, family days, um, all these other events that have hundreds of people, cars park on the grass, no problem. It's allowed in the township. But they were going to have a mass with the with 150 some odd people on September 23rd. I just get done the trial, as I mentioned before, in Grand Rapids. I get back to the office on September 17th and there at 6.30 p.m. in my inbox is a lawsuit that the township filed against Catholic Healthcare International and a motion for an ex parte temporary restraining order. Ex parte means we don't get a chance to respond. They want the judge to just to, to rule on it, ordering the removal. 6.30 p.m. on a 6.30 p.m. on a Friday. Yes. So I get this. And um, so they want to they want an order immediately from a state judge to order the removal. And they want to prohibit them from using that driveway to have any organized gatherings. So basically they say, look, you can't use this property for any religious worship purposes and you can't put any displays up uh, for religious worship purposes. So I get home Friday night after a trial, long week, 
and uh, turn two, and we file an emergency motion for a temporary restraining order and preliminary injunction in federal court, not federal case, because federal law trumps, you know, state law. They're asking the state court judge to issue an order based on the, a, a zoning ordinance that is unconstitutional on its face and in its application violates uh, my client's constitutional rights. So we got that filed by Friday, by, excuse me, Sunday night. Monday, the judge has a conference, the federal judge, and uh, we have a hearing on our motion on Tuesday for a temporary restraining order. Meanwhile, later that day, the circuit court judge issues her order demanding my clients remove their, those uh, religious displays. The, the federal state judge, circuit court state judge, state circuit court yeah. judge, the uh, which is like the trial court level in the state side. Our federal district court judge denies our TRO, and we and I ask her on the record to make it a denial of our preliminary injunction so I can appeal right away. It's a, a, a denial of a preliminary injunction is an order that can be appealed as of right. So meanwhile, after that hearing, we find out that the judge signed the TRO. So we we immediately filed a motion to dissolve the TRO and ask the court specifically to dissolve it until we can be heard on it on September 28th, which is, she said, a hearing date for The it. state court. The, the state, state court. court. So we got two things going on here at the same time. Um, we hear nothing from the judge. All she does is she grants the motion and sets the hearing for the 28th. Well, the event was supposed to take place on the 23rd. So we filed a motion for clarification, asked her to enter an order to dissolve the TRO until we could be heard on it September 28th. She denied it straight up. No decision, just literally a stamp. Denied. So we're in the position now where we have to remove everything, all the items off the um, off the property, and we do because then otherwise we're going to be held in contempt, and uh, and then you're going to be dealing with state contempt court proceedings on top of everything else. So if you're following along here, this is crazy. We got parallel. So we got the religious displays come down on the uh, 29th of September. Oh, so we have this hearing on the 28th. Um, they put on this this uh, witness from the township. Um, she would testify at the state court level at the, at the state, at the state court, at like the trial court level. And I cross-examined her for, I don't know, about two hours or so. And her testimony was so absurd in the township. According to her, if you put up a, you know, a deer tree stand that touches the ground, you got to pay a $50 permit. I get, I guarantee you that's news to probably thousands of hunters in this very rural community that need a permit. She said, you need a $50 permit to put a picnic table on your property. So I asked her, do you have a picnic table on your property? And she says, yeah. And I said, do you get a permit for it? She said, no. And I said, why? She said, well, I put it on my deck. And I said, well, so if you take it off your deck, and you put it on the ground, you need a $50 permit per picnic table? Yes, you do. And how about a birdhouse? You need a, a, do you need a $50 permit for a birdhouse? Um, yeah, you do. I mean, it was just absurd. And, and the reality is nobody enforces any of these things because they're not even, they're not even uh, it's not even logical what she's arguing. So I said, well, look, if these, these 14 stations of the cross are the same size as these birdhouses. If we put out 14 stations of the cross, the altar is the same size as a, uh, as a picnic table. And the, the image of Our Lady, she admitted that you could, you could build a stone wall 10 feet high, 12 feet, uh, 12 feet wide. Well, just you know, submit $50 permits for each of those. Um, and she said, well, if, you, if this property was a private residence, you could do it. So you could do it on a private residence, but a religious organization can't do it on their 40 acre property. Instead, what they have to go through is this onerous zoning process, get special land use approval, which they already denied, you know, when to, to build the chapel and put these other items out, which is going to cost, you know, tens, tens of thousands of dollars. It's just so absurd. So anyways, that during the hearing, she, she said, you know, it could be considered a park, which a park is a permitted use. And I was like, really, this is the first time I ever heard the township say that this could be a park. And then immediately the attorneys on the other side jumped in and said, judge, can we have a, uh, a conference just amongst attorneys? 
And so we did. And they said, well, they might. And then we came back and the judge agreed to adjourn the hearing, which is still adjourned to figure out a path forward under the uh, zoning regulations. So we're still working that out. Meanwhile, my federal judge uh, finally issued her order denying our preliminary injunction on the, 20, on the uh, 29th. So this is the day after that hearing. And on the 30th, we immediately filed a notice of appeal. And then that was a Friday. And then that Monday, I filed an emergency injunction pending appeal to get the Sixth Circuit to issue the injunction that the, the, uh, my district court judge would not do. And uh, they just issued an order granting expedited consideration and the township has to respond to that uh, by next week. So if you are able to follow all of that, the bottom line is um, for about two weeks straight, pretty much 24 seven, I was filing briefs, motions, emergency motions, uh, trying to get this, uh, this property reinstated. But just think about that. <laughs> 40 acres of rural property out in the middle, literally out in the, the middle of the woods of this township in Michigan. And they've got these 14 stations of the cross, you know, beautifully done out in the middle of the woods. You can't even see it from the road. You have to literally go on the driveway and up the property. You got this small altar in this, this, you know, beautifully well done image of Our Lady of Grace that's on stacked stones. It's been up for over a year. There's no safety issues whatsoever. And they demanded that those be taken down and they demand that they can't use this, you know, the, the uh, dirt driveway in, even though all these residences with dirt driveways and, and township parks or county parks with dirt driveways can have hundreds of people doing secular events. You can't have a mass on this property. I mean, it's like, do we live in China? I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. It's absolutely unbelievable. Like I said, it's one of the most outrageous uh, restrictions on religious freedom I've ever seen. But as uh, you know, as, as uh, we were just stating previously, you know, the, our district court judge, this is the other line I usually tell my clients, the district court judge, or in this case, too, on the state side, the circuit court judge, they may have been the first judge to rule, but they're not going to be the last because we have the appellate process. And, uh, and we typically prevail up on the appellate courts because, uh, quite frankly, I think at the appellate level, they look at the law more closely. They look at the facts uh, more closely. And, um, and I, you know, I, I just uh, I think this will ultimately be, uh, be a victory. But right now, they're, you know, my, my clients are being persecuted, uh, being persecuted by the township. And um, we're fighting at every, every chance we can. So that's- you know, And what's interesting, about, what's interesting yes. about this case, Rob, yeah. um, is that had this taken place in the context of Muslims in a mosque, the courts and the, even the Department of Justice would likely have weighed in, which they- sometimes do in these cases they very they often there's a, it's right, almost more more, civil, more often than not do they <laughs> when it's a muslim yeah and it's a mosque because they just assume that the residences and the, the and the and the people around are doing it out of anti-islamic or islamic animus as the case we discussed earlier where um, our client was Literally, there was there's no evidence whatsoever of any Islamic animus. She was just trying to protect the quality of the neighborhood against overuse of a public park by a local school. And she was threatened with criminal prosecution. Yeah, I, I edited in one of Rob's briefs, but I don't think it ever got in for whatever reason, but that it was this, a word. It was a word this, count limit. That was yeah, it. Yeah, I, it was introduced during you know, my oral argument. <laughs> yeah. That this is the fact that in the 21st century, that you can have a 40 acre wooded property 
40 acres and you can't put up these little things that you, if you put them on a private, on a residential property, you can. In other words, secular use or purposes are permitted. Religious use and purposes are not permitted. That is an abject embarrassment. And what's the greater embarrassment, and I say this for the record, is that that circuit court judge and that district court judge could literally rule the way they did and put it down on paper. Ah, but guess, the district court judge actually didn't write an opinion, either in denying the, the TRO, the temporary restraining order, or our preliminary injunction. She simply put it on the record. It's a transcript, which nobody is going to get to but us and other lawyers. We're going to put it on the record on appeal. But the fact is, is she knew her decision was simply an ideological animus against Catholics. And as a Jew, I don't know what any of these things are, the Station of the Cross and this, that, and the other. I have no idea. But what I do know is that Catholics, like Jews, like Baptists, like Protestants, like Muslims, have the right to practice their religion, and they shouldn't be discriminated against and treated differently than similarly situated secular real property owners. Yeah, it, it, it literally flips the First Amendment on its head, right? Because if anything, you know, an, an altar should be protected more than a picnic table. A station of the cross right. should be protected more than a birdhouse. The image of Our Lady of Grace should be protected more than just a stone wall. And to make the argument that, well, right. it's, you know, build a house on the property, then it'll be residential property. You're missing the point. <laughs> you're missing, right. and, but therein you're missing lies, the main point. Therein lies the evolution and why we are in a non-kinetic civil war because in the courts, in the public education system, in the university systems, in the media systems, in the culture systems, this country raises above, in fact, it doesn't do that. It simply sanctifies secular purposes and demeans religious purposes, sectarian purposes. It literally, as Rob says, flips the First Amendment on its head. Yeah. And I, you know, the, the Supreme Court in the Fulton County case just recently where they, um, they ruled in favor of religious freedom, you know, they made the point again, that like the, the government, what, what is the harm that's being caused, right? If they're, what is the harm caused by, you know, a six foot birdhouse compared to, to a, you know, a six foot station of the cross, what's different between those two things? There's, there's nothing. What is your compelling reason, right? You have to satisfy strict scrutiny. What is your compelling reason that's narrowly tailored to say you can have a six-foot birdhouse on a private residence across the street, but you can't have a six-foot station of the cross on property that's owned by a religious organization? Is it because, well, a house is on one of them? Well, what does that have to do with anything? I mean, I said, what does it have to do with whether there's a sign there or not a sign there? It doesn't. This, the, under, under the, you know, even the most recent you know, Supreme Court pronouncements on the uh, Frexcise clause. I don't see how this uh, this stands. We'll see what the Sixth Circuit does, but this uh, this battle is uh, is certainly far from over. Now, in the midst of all this going on, on September 23rd, I argued before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit in our uh, lawsuit challenging Pennsylvania's uh, mask mandate and contact uh, tracing program. And the U.S. Court of Appeals for the uh, Third Circuit is located in uh, in Philadelphia. It was interesting because the, where the, the Court of Appeals is, it's right near, um, it, it's um, right near the, uh, oh my gosh, it, it's, it's like the, the, the Liberty uh, Bell? The, no, the, 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 uh, the, where the Constitution was signed at the, um, uh, 
Oh my gosh. They, they caught where the constitution convention was held and, 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 uh, and, uh, in the hall. So right, right there across my hotel was, was the, you know, the, 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 uh, the hall of Liberty really. I mean, just, you know, where the constitution was, was drafted and, and, uh, and signed. So I, I took a picture of that and I sent it to my clients at, um, at Catholic healthcare international. I said, look, I'm in the cradle of Liberty and you're in its graveyard because <laughs> that's, that's, uh, it's totally what uh, the situation was up in, in Michigan, but we'll see what the, uh, what the third circuit does. I, my concern is um, because obviously during the course of all this litigate, you know, we filed this lawsuit last October, you know, they modified their, their mask mandate. They're only imposing it now in schools. So always the question comes up, Oh, is the case moot now? Right. Because these, they keep moving these goalposts and you can't get the, the courts to act any quicker than what they are uh, doing. And, and it, you know, takes you over a year to get the case up to the court of appeals so we'll see what they um, see if they punt. That's always the easiest way um, for them is to um, uh, you know to get rid of a, a case, a hot button issue case. Say, well, you know the case is moot now because the the order has changed. But there's nothing to prevent them from you know reinstating the order. And likely with all the COVID, you know Delta variant and vaccine mandates and everything else, there's no doubt that these mask mandates are going to be uh, are going to be coming back in. Let's see uh, what other main. Those are the main the main things that were taken up uh, our time that uh, I want to cover during this, this podcast and get to some, some um, contemporary issues that are, that are going on. And that's going to, I think, by the way, Rob, some new litigation. Yes, go ahead. The, the, the building you are searching for, I just Googled it, was the old Pennsylvania state house right. now known as independence hall. Independence hall. My goodness. Right. <laughs> it's amazing how you can't remember. Right. Yeah. It was the old state house independence right. hall. So I have a beautiful picture of independence hall. And, uh, you know, it's walking past because I, you know, I walked right past it to go to the oral argument. You had to pause and just, you know, and just really contemplate what took place there in Independence Hall. What a, oh my goodness. You know, and, and look, what, look what this administration and these judges and everybody else are doing to this incredible experiment that was uh, started by our founding fathers, who, by the way, you know, gave up everything um, to, to give us these, uh, these incredible liberties, this constitution, this, this Republican form of government, and we're doing everything we can to screw it up in a big, big right. way. And uh, you know, this, well, this administration has been unbelievable. I mean, they've only been in the office for like 10 months. And my gosh, I mean, it is unbelievable what is going, look at what happened in Afghanistan. What a debacle. We're, we're, we are now you know, a, a laughingstock in, internationally. I'm just waiting for China to flex its muscles even more than what it has been in terms of Taiwan, because they know we're not going to do anything about it. You look at that southern border, an absolute abject crisis, right? And he turned it over to, uh, to Harris, right, his VP. Where's she been? My gosh, she, she must be on the, uh, you know, the, the, the witness protection list or something, because she just disappeared off the face of the earth. She probably doesn't want to touch that anywhere, because that is, that is a disaster. Has anybody pumped gas recently at, your, at the gas price? Twice as much. We used to be energy efficient. Um, we, we were actually an exporter of our energy, and now we're not. Now we're relying on foreign oil and gas prices are through the roof. Have you looked in the shopping stores? Have you gone to try to buy some beef lately? It's gone up incredibly. I, the other day, and even with work, you know, the government's paying everybody to not work. I went to the grocery store just to pick up something after my you know, daughter's volleyball game to grab something for dinner. All they had open, and this was a big Kroger shopping center, big in Ann Arbor. And all they had open was one set of, uh, you know, self-checkout. And I walk over and I see a person, you know, standing on the side 
uh, you know, the start of the line. I walk over, and as soon as I go around the corner, I look back, and probably 50 to 100 feet back, it was a line of people waiting to check out because they didn't have any workers to run the checkouts. Unbelievable. It just, I was like, oh my gosh, this is like a bread line. I feel like I'm in the Soviet Union. This is where we're headed, people. I mean, make no mistake about it. You know, we're in a non-kinetic war, no doubt about it. Well, you know, it's, it's fascinating going back to your comment about Independence Hall and the pause, because if you think about it, the movement to tear down all of our founding fathers um, and even those who um, took part in the Civil War on both sides, but who were true American heroes in their own right, um, even from the Confederate side, who loved this country and thought they were doing what was right and did what they did. But the tearing down based upon the idea that if you had anything to do with slavery back then when everybody had something to do with slavery, even the abolitionist at some level had something to do with it. The fact is, is that um, the rewriting of history to, to impose some modern progressive notion um, and to deny our history and the, um, the uniqueness of our history among all nations. I'm surprised that Independence Hall wasn't torn down because as we all know, the two thirds compromise, which was written into the constitution so that we could form this nation and move it along in a way that um, would express in better and better, more concrete ways, the fact that all men are created equal by God. The fact is, is that it standing is, is probably temporary at some point, um, even, even that's going to, to go. But if you, if you then leap forward as Rob has done and look at what's happened under the Biden administration, and Rob has just skimmed over the surface, of course, um, deeply, if all of this can happen in 10 months and you can add more of those things, you know, the Haitians at the border, none of the illegal immigrants being allowed to flood into the United States and being relocated um, have vaccines. None of them are Meanwhile, being, they mandate, you know, law-abiding citizens arrested, to get vaccines right. un, or lose your job. Right. Unbelievable. So that, yeah, so that you look at not just Afghanistan and that failure and the failure to actual American citizens and and individuals who um, should have had a right to be um, um, exfilled from Afghanistan and brought to the United States. Once again, look at the United States' reputation as a, um, a singular power for good in this world. Even though I'm sure the Europeans hated Trump, certainly China and Russia hated Trump, the fact is, is they feared him and respected the United States in the context of power. They might not have liked or respected what we do or how we do it, but when it came to our power and our national security interest in terms of America first, that became, by the way, among the, the shadow government, the bureaucrats and the technocrats at the State Department and the Department of Defense, that became an embarrassment, America first. And it was the calling card for, um, dis, you know, disgracing America publicly by Europeans. But of course it would, because Europeans would think of the world as the Euro first, Europe first, France first. It's only natural. 
we shouldn't have been embarrassed by it, but the shadow government was, and that led to m- much of Donald Trump's problems as president. Yeah, well, let's uh, let's talk about some of these contemporary attacks by the Biden administration, in particular, the Department of Justice, their attack on civil liberties. Yeah, they should be called this, you know, the Department of Injustice. I mean, my goodness. I mean, if, if you don't think we're in a non-kinetic civil war with the progressive left, really, and these are the communist tyrants who stomp all over our Constitution, they happen to be in charge in Washington, D.C. right now, uh, then think again. And, and this, uh, this latest story is, is really in the category of, of outrageous. So you have Attorney General Merrick Garland, uh, a leftist progressive. Remember how he was portrayed as this moderate, you know, when, they, when uh, Obama wanted him to take the place of Scalia. Uh, well, he's, uh, he's showing his true colors. So he's uh, now vowed to, to use federal law enforcement power, which is, which is great, to go after parents who speak out uh, against their schools and what the schools are teaching their children, for goodness sakes, right? Because there's a lot of outrage going on right now, appropriately so, with this critical race theory nonsense, right? Teaching kids to be racist. And so parents are outraged by it, and they're speaking out at these public hearings because they have an absolute fundamental right to do so. Freedom of speech and redress of grievances to the government. These are, these are you know, these school boards are government officials, right? They, they run the schools. You have, uh, you know, all this transgendered nonsense that's being, you know, shoved down the throats of these young kids in these schools. You have these sex education programs. I know there's one here locally in Saline that's pornographic and they're forcing the kids to do it. And you have a lot of you know, parents and parents' organizations standing up and speaking out. Well, all of a sudden now, according to Merrick Garland in his October 4th, 2021 memo, this is harassment, intimidation, and threats of violence. Har- harassment, intimidation, right? Okay, so uh, free speech that you don't like is harassment, intimidation. We know that's what the left always says, right? If they don't like your speech, you're a hate group. You're, this is uh, intimidation. These are, you know, these are threats. No, it's called the right to free speech. Sorry, Merrick. You probably wouldn't know the Constitution if it hit you in the head. How the heck were you ever considered for the, you know, for the U.S. Supreme Court? My goodness. These uh, you know, other forms of intimidation harassment. He's going to launch these federal investigations. You know, this is, this is, all this is is a shot across the bow telling people you better shut up, right? Because Big Brother is watching. We're going to bring the power of the federal government upon you parents who dare disrupt what's going on in this progressive left-wing agenda that we want to force your kids into, right? These, these public schools are becoming concentration camps for the communists and parents don't like it. And when they're speaking up about it, they're now trying to shut down the speaker. Oh, by the way, Merrick, these, this is a national threat of violence. I don't know about you, David, but I've seen nothing in terms of any of these things being violent. Do I see parents who are very vocal, who are very concerned, who are very angry? Absolutely. As I would be, if my kid was subjected to this nonsense, which is the reason why we've been homeschooling our kids for 20 plus years, right? And I encourage everybody, get your kids out of public schools. They're communist concentration camps. But where's Merrick Garland speaking out about Antifa and Black Lives Matter, right? We watched, we can see the video, roll the videos, right? Where they, you have cities burning down. You have people taking over cities, armed. These people engaging in actual acts of violence. Where's your memorandum there, Merrick Garland, on Antifa and Black Lives Matter. You are a joke, but you're a dangerous joke. 
And uh, you know, you're not going to hear that. This is going to be the last you're going to hear from us on this uh, on this particular issue. But this is this is absolutely outrageous. Weaponizing the Department of Justice to promote a particular agenda. And oh, by the way, and I think Dave, you might have a few comments on this. We come to find out, I saw on Tucker Carlson <laughs> last night that uh, you know what, Merrick, you might have a little bit of a conflict of interest here. So, David, if you have some thoughts on, on what I said and, and address the conflict of interest. Yeah, um, let me start at uh, the very specific and move to more specific or less specific and the general, then come back to the very specific with Garland's conflict of interest. At the specific level, we have good friends. And I think of one who is on our advisory board who writes on these matters, um, Andy McCarthy, who um, uh, was in the Department of Justice as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, very successful prosecutor of the blind shake, um, worked with the FBI in counterterrorism uh, uh, matters uh, during the Clinton administration, um, a solid guy. We disagree with him on a number of things, January 6th, for example. Um, but when um, Merrick Garland was being um, nominated and going through the nomination, the Senate confirmation process, um, if memory serves me correctly, Andy and other conservative thinkers were saying, look, we might not like the choice, but he's, he's a, a seasoned Department of Justice fellow. He, you know, he was nominated by, by Obama to be on the, uh, the Supreme Court. And of course, his nomination was waylaid because um, essentially Obama was a, what's the term of art we use when lame we're duck. at the end of their term? <laughs> lame duck. He was a lame duck. And, and the Senate just wouldn't um, vote on it. And so um, Biden came in and as a, uh, as a consolation prize appointed him, had the DOJ. And many people said, okay, he wouldn't make a very good Supreme Court justice, but because he had his ideological bent, but he's a solid guy and he knows that not to politicize the DOJ. Well, guess what? Those kind of commentators, including my dear friend and, 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 and brother in arms, Andy McCarthy, don't truly understand that the system no longer is the system. The constitution is now a piece of paper that only a few folks like Rob and I fight for, but among the power levers in this society, in this nation, it is simply a piece of paper to write any, make whatever changes you want on the fly. And Merrick Garland is part of the politicalization process. And that comes to the second specific comment about Merrick Garland, that, um, uh, in reality, when he talks about um, this new examination and these new programs to identify these domestic terrorists, these parents, um, he gives a nod to the First Amendment, says, you know, we're going to protect protective free speech. But that's all it is. It's just a nod. Because then he says, as Robert points out, we're going to be looking at these threats of violence, he puts that first, intimidation and harassment. In other words, he puts those latter two together with the first. Now, under the First Amendment, and this is just basic First Amendment law, and Merrick Garland knows this, that 
not all speech is protected, but in the context of what we're talking about, there's only two categories that aren't protected, and that's true threats and incitement. Now, true threats are a threat where John Smith threatens Mary Smith with actual attack, and it's directed at her, and it's intended to be directed at her, and it would be understood by um, a reasonable observer that it was an actual threat to do her harm. If you don't, for a judge, if you don't rule in my favor, I'm going to have you killed. Uh, those kinds of threats. And the other is incitement. And incitement, it has to be directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action. And the speech must be likely to incite or produce such action. Now, in intimidation and harassment is what exactly? Uh, the problem with statutes that try to criminalize that is oftentimes they're vague. And unless they're um, understood and enforced in ways that fall within that definition that we just talked about, that comes from the Supreme Court case, Brandenburg v. Ohio, and all of its progeny, then it can't be incitement. And so if you look at those videos, there is no incitement. So what exactly are they referring to? Well, it was either MSNBC or CNN, one of their talk shows, and I didn't see it, I just read about it, in which the clip trying to pull out the most egregious form, a mother got up where they were mandating masks. And she said, if, if and she had all her explanations why she was opposed to masks, and these are my children. And if you try to mask my child, I'm coming after you. Now, is that a threat? Is that incitement? The answer is no. No one in their right mind understood that to be anything more than hyperbole and the idea that she's coming after them in that context. She's going to stand up at these board meetings. She's going to have her say. She's going to file her civil rights litigation. There's no way in the world that that could have been understood as an actual threat of physical violence, and it certainly wasn't imminent. She wasn't trying to incite the crowd. She was at this convention, and it was conditional. If you do this in the future, I'm coming after you. There is no way that that falls within that context. So again, coming back to Rob's question, what absolutely criminal behavior, or what even possible criminal behavior are you referring to? And when you juxtapose that against the Black Lives Matter and the Antifa and the general left wing, it's not just Black Lives Matter and Antifa. You look at the protests, you look at individuals threatening the Arizona Congresswoman and Manchin um, because they Democratic Party members who stood up against this incredible spending that um, Biden and, and the progressives want to engage in, they're being literally followed around, followed into the bathroom, they're being harassed, their homes are being... So it's simply such a, a, a contradiction between one and the other that you understand what's going on. And then the final general matter that I wanna bring out before getting into the conflict of interest is that this politicalization of the Department of Justice and the US Attorney's Office and the FBI, which are all part of the Department of Justice, by the way, that when, when you look at it, 
you could trace it all the way back even before the Kennedy administration. Certainly Robert Kennedy began the politicization process. We've seen that in, in documents that have been unclassified and released now. But you had it in the FBI with J. Edgar Hoover, who we know politicized the FBI um, to a large extent. Um, but it really began in the modern context in the way that we see it now in chilling free speech, in um, putting individuals who simply were maybe trespassing on January 6th because they follow the crowd in there with their grandkids or their kids and they walk on um, congressional grounds, the Capitol grounds. Um, these people are being put in jail, not given bail, held in solitary confinement and treated like literally terrorists. No weapons, no nothing. Now, there were some who had weapons. There were some who acted and should be put in jail and not given bail. But the vast, vast majority of these people um, literally were just going with the flow of those who went on capital grounds. When you, when you see the politicalization of the Department of Justice and the FBI under Comey, it begins in the Obama administration where um, uh, Holder, Eric Holder, was literally Obama's lapdog. And I would say maybe it's the reverse. Maybe Obama was Holder's lapdog. Or maybe they were just incredibly good partners in this endeavor. But they politicized fast and furious, all the, the examples. And then what happens in that politicization process, and this is the non-kinetic civil war, is that the legal arena, the legal world joins arms. So you have the pro bono lawyers fighting for the, the Black Lives Matter and the Antifa as heroes, as the Gitmo bar, the ones that trying to, you know, representing uh, uh, terrorists sitting in Gitmo. They're lionized as the wonderful attorneys. Attorneys who fight on our side are demonized. You have academia jumping on. You have media supporting the left progressive politicalization narrative. You have all of these aspects of society converging in one funnel. Now, it's not a conspiracy theory because they're not sitting in some you know, cigar smoke-filled room or hashish-filled room, whatever they're smoking. They're not sitting together and, and conspiring together, but they're following a, a narrative that once it gets out by the Democratic Party, by, by the leaders of this movement, by media, everyone coalesces around that narrative. And that is what's taking place. And when you combine that with the effect they have on the electoral process in terms of the absolute almost mind control in this country, um, there you see the danger and you see why it is that um, there are very few avenues left for us to do battle. And one is in our area, but that's increasingly difficult. Ah, so let me just talk finally yeah. about Garland's conflict of interest. So as it turns out, and I don't know any of this for fact, but I read a narrative from Tucker Carlson's show, and um, assuming it's true, and I don't know that it's true, apparently his people uncovered the fact um, that Merrick Garland's daughter is married to a man whose business is to provide training and CRT, critical race theory programs to various school districts. And in fact, he's been awarded grants by the government, uh, you know, in excess of a million dollars for this work. And under the DOJ ethics protocols, 
that's not permitted or it has to be disclosed and it has to be reviewed by an independent ethics body. And the question is, did Eric Merrick Garland go through that process? Has he made it known himself within the DOJ? Well, I doubt it. And even if he did, it's going to be reviewed by the same shadow government bureaucrat and technocrats who would go through the process with Donald Trump and his family and find that Donald Trump was violating this thing and that thing and not doing this properly and that, because again, it's ideologically driven. Anyone who has any faith, any faith in the impartiality and the professionalism of government bureaucrats, technocrats, judges, clerks is simply mistaken. I'm not saying that they're all evil. I'm saying if you don't think that they're not carrying their ideological baggage with them when they're making their decisions, and in some cases, in favor of the conservative viewpoint, they are acting as human beings. They, they do not leave their ideological baggage at the front door of their workplace. They bring it in with them. They might, talk about, might not talk about it. They might be more subtle than others. But what we're seeing increasingly, and it's certainly true at the district court level, and this is what we saw in the, in the case of the Catholic Church trying to build on its own property, little things at the circuit state circuit court judge level and the federal district court judge level, those judges operated and decided based entirely on their ideological bent, not on the facts and not on the law. We'll see how the appellate court rules. All right. Well, we got one more story that I want to uh, want to address. I think we might be able to just squeeze it in. It's going to be tight. Um, and this so uh, going back to China and the origins of the uh, of the China flu, also known as COVID-19. So we see there's uh, a recent latest report is that China increased its spending on coronavirus tests in the country's uh, Hubei province, where Wuhan is. The, uh, they had a surge in the purchase of PCR tests. And they had, the story said there was a notable, significant, and abnormal 2019 purchase of PCR equipment in Wuhan by the People's Liberation Army Airborne Army Hospital. So there is uncovered this story where China has spent huge amounts of money, abnormally so, on, on PCR testings and uh, PCR tests for COVID and other uh, protective measures prior to this, uh, you know, knowing that this COVID-19 has now um, infected the world. Amazing, just more and more evidence, right? And what is this evidence? It, you know, from a, from a trial perspective, this would be evidence of knowledge, right? That they knew that there was something, either, either this thing got released a, a little bit sooner than what they were, they were expecting, or there was some expectation that there was going to be, you know, some, you know, overwhelming, uh, you know, impact by a, by a release of a, of a virus in that particular area. It's just, uh, just more evidence just keeps mounting uh, against China in terms of, uh, you know, the origins of this COVID-19, which again, quite frankly, this thing has had more of an impact than if they had dropped a nuclear weapon on a, uh, on a, uh, on a country. When you think about how the, the economic impact, the number of deaths and the impact is continuing to have today, not to mention its impact on our on our, on our fundamental freedoms here in the United States. David. Final thoughts uh, just on this. Final yeah. thought on that. Yeah. If you, it's always important to look at the process, what's taking place. And um, when you look at the evidence 
that is mounted against China and in favor of the conclusion that China in knew that they had a problem, they knew where it came from, they attempted to scrub it, that evidence has been out now, um, and now we see that they were even trying to respond to the disease with these purchases as early as July. So what the process, what you see when, when people are trying to dismiss that argument and say, there's nothing to see here, folks, let's just move on, get your vaccines, live under the mandate, have masks, don't get together, um, you know, restrict your liberty, but let's not worry about the fact that, about how it came about, who caused it, because gee, it'll never happen again, right? I mean, there won't be another. There's actually evidence in my view, and it's building, it's not as strong as we know that it might've been a lab accident, but this very well could have been military work and an accident that occurred as a result of biological warfare. And there's still sufficient evidence to, to keep as a possibility the fact that this was all purposeful. Now, I don't think that's the case, but there is evidence out there and it's how you measure that evidence. But what the process is by the left, by the progressives, by the totalitarians who wanna see us restricted more and more and not pay attention to China, is they'll take every little piece of evidence and simply segregate it out and say, in and of itself, the intelligence services only have moderate confidence that this occurred or that this shows this. And this other piece of evidence is only moderate confidence. And this piece of evidence might be high confidence, but alone doesn't demonstrate or prove anything. But that's an absurdity for several reasons. No one's going to claim that circumstantial evidence alone or collectively absolutely proves with certainty of anything. What it can demonstrate and prove with a sufficient level of confidence to satisfy a foreign policy initiative. China has done enough that they should be sanctioned and we should be literally at loggerheads with them over this in terms of paying for it because it would certainly satisfy a civil court and the preponderance of the evidence. The question is, is does that mean at the foreign relations level, we should take issue with China? I would say yes. Because as long as they have the wet markets and the caves and the bats and the experimentation going on, and we know they do, it does. Does it mean that we should be doing an internal investigation against Fauci and company for funding this stuff? Absolutely. Should we be looking at legislation to end such funding? Whether that's the conclusion or not, we should certainly be examining it. Those are the, when you take this evidence and you put it together collectively, it certainly comes to the level of preponderance of the evidence. In my view as to an action occurring at the lab, it's reaching the level beyond a reasonable doubt, which doesn't apply here because we're not in a criminal court. But the most important thing that this country should be doing, the most important thing are not the vaccine mandates and the mask and all that other stuff. Let adults decide for themselves what their risks are. The most important thing is to find out how this happened. And if it wasn't just nature 
acting the way it did. And if it was nature, where are these COVID diseases come from? If they're coming from bats in Chinese caves, then go and fumigate the darn caves and kill the bats, for goodness sakes. And I don't care if you kill every last bat in the world and we extinguish them as a species, no bat should disease should kill a human being. But if it wasn't that, and we investigate properly, and it was a lab accident, then that kind of process, those lab experimentations should be ceased until we can do a proper analysis of the risk benefits and say, can we increase the protocols to protect against unintended consequences, the risk of the stuff leaking out? Well, if we can, fine, and then measure that against the benefits. What benefit comes from that? I would suggest just out of the box that you couldn't trust China to open the door correctly without trying to slam your hand shut in the door. You couldn't trust China to manufacture a widget, much less be experimenting on this stuff, which is why I'm a huge advocate of examining our policy about free trade with China, because we've seen over and over and over again where Chinese product, pro products are defective and dangerously so. And we're also seeing where Chinese um, products in the military, aerospace, um, software industry are being inserted in very sensitive high-tech um, applications in US military intelligence and software programs in which China could be creating all sorts of backdoors. And that's not conspiracy. We know they do it. We know and it's in the courts that they steal technology right, left, and center. They have zero respect for trademark or copyright or intellectual property rights, zero. So this is an important issue and it will continue to be down the road. Thanks, David. Well, I want to wrap this up. I have just a couple of real quick um, comments. You know, you talk about the evidence oftentimes, you know, like what the left likes to do here. Each piece of evidence is, you know, is a tile in the mosaic, right? And you put each of these tiles in and you look at the overall mosaic to make a determination. Well, they want to, they want you to focus on each of the individual tiles, you know, independent of all the others, which is wrong. And that's not what you do. You know, we're lawyers as we do in a court of law. And oh, by the way, circumstantial evidence is sufficient to prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt, never mind by a preponderance of evidence. Circumstantial evidence is evidence. Um, and there's absolutely plenty of evidence now when you're putting these tiles in that mosaic. What does the mosaic look like? Yeah, this thing came from, uh, from that lab in Wuhan and uh, the question of you know, knowledge and intentions. Um, I guess we're, we're still waiting for that to be decided definitively, but I'm in the beyond a reasonable doubt category on that side uh, right now. And one last thing, and you know, we mentioned that Catholic Healthcare International case, it's up on appeal. Uh, please pray for that. Um, we think the, uh, the district court judge by denying our preliminary injunction on federal grounds was wrong as a matter of law. And that's why we are appealing and going up to the Sixth Circuit. So uh, please keep that in your prayers and hopefully we have a favorable outcome on this motion for an injunction pending appeal. It's important for the defense of religious freedom. So that's all the time we have today. And again, we look forward to our next discussion. Hopefully it won't be uh, too, too long in between. Um, you never know what's coming up. Boy, there's, there's emergency motions and things all over the place. There's, there's, as I've been saying, there's, uh, you can't swing a dead cat and not hit a constitutional violation these days with the way this government's going. Um, so again, thank you all for joining us. As you know, our podcasts, uh, excuse me, our video casts are posted on our Rumble and YouTube channels and our pod 
podcast. I'll post it on Spotify and Stitcher and probably wherever else you can find a, um, a podcast. If you like the content, please follow us and please spread the word. Um, as also as a nonprofit public interest law firm, all this litigation that we've been talking about, we continue to talk about, um, we do uh, pro bono for the good. Uh, we are recognized by the IRS as a 501c3. Um, and so if you, uh, we, have to, we have to rely upon generous donations from people like you to continue the work we do. So if you would like to support our work, uh, you can do so safely at our website, AmericanFreedomLawCenter.org. All donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent of the law. Thank you all again. May God bless you and may he continue to bless America. Amen.